This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. And now, on to my interview with Jared Evan. The dopeness of my art, it was in patterns. It was like it was dope before I got signed, and not so much when I was in the deal. When I got out of the deal, it was like dope again. And it just goes to show you that when you just do what you want and you have a vision and you just want to make what you want to make and create what you want to create, that's when really, that's when people will come. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they move, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to the Silent Giants podcast, a podcast that highlights the superstars behind the scenes of popular culture. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at, at Corey Cambridge. Today's special guest is musical artist, songwriter, and producer Jared Evan. Jared is an amazing talent and super cool human who has vast knowledge on the music industry. In 2009, Jared signed to Interscope Records, where he was heavily backed by industry heavyweight Jimmy Iovine. He also worked in the studio with some of the biggest names in music, like Pharrell, Chad Hugo, Dr. Dre, Il Mine, Sata Selecta, Action Bronson, Joey Badass, and many others. Currently, Jared is releasing new music independently, and he says it should be out very, very, very soon. In this interview, we chat about his upbringing in Long Island, his first internship at The Fader, which led him to work with the legendary video director Rick Cordero, meeting Diddy, how he landed at Interscope, his new venture as an independent artist, and he shares unreal, valuable advice for independent artists. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the performer, songwriter, producer, my friend, the silent giant, Jared Evans. Okay, give me a one, two, one, one two. two, one, two, check, one, two. Jared, what's up, dog? What's up, Corey? Dog, it's nice having you here, yes, bro. I feel like I know you. Right? <laughs> like, we've, like, in another life, we knew each other. Yeah, something. I'm like, bro, we have it all the crazy. same friends. You have a bunch of mutuals. Yeah, very serendipitous. Gang, gang. Gang, gang, all day. How's everything, dog? <laughs> it's good, man. It's good to be here. Like, I haven't done, like, a, even an interview thing in, in a long time. And I hate to tangent it out, but, like, just simply because I have been working on the next stuff that, you know, I've got. So I wanted to purposely step away. You know, my Instagram is like deleted and every, I've kind of just stepped back into real life for a minute. I know, I know. So, I know. But I'm saying coming here today and doing this is like, it's, it's feels like I'm getting, we're getting back into the groove again. Have you, you know been to, I mean? on a podcast before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done, do you know Emilio Sparks actually? Oh yes. Emilio Sparks. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's a big like radio. He works at Satellite, I believe now, Sirius. Okay. Known him for years, but uh, I think that was the last podcast I did was with him, but I've done more podcasts before. I, I'm, I, obviously, I'm a huge fan of the podcast medium. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and and um, 
I've definitely done more interviews than let's be clear though. Like there's a difference between an interview and a podcast. So for sure. Yeah, no, but I've done, I've done quite, quite a few of podcasts. Do, yeah. do you have a favorite, uh, interview medium that you prefer? Do you prefer podcasts and you prefer print? Do you prefer, Oh man, I don't, I, print is, could be epic if it's like a cool story and it's like, you're into the read. Um, but I think in terms of like talking with someone, I, I prefer podcasts cause it just feels like. It's not stiff and it's like it's a conversation. You know what I mean? That you're you could be high, freely. you could be drunk. Exactly. <laughs> you could kind of exactly. And um it's it's just free. Whereas like if there's a interview set up at a thing and there's camera, like like I'll we I'll swing those at the park too, but there's definitely a more of a sense of like you're filming, we see like it's weird, like it's you know, the the camera's on, like you feel that that tenseness. You well, know I mean? also too, like there's no time restraint. So like right. if I'm sitting down in like a television show interview, right. I have eight minutes. Exactly. And so there is no, like, I have points that I have to touch. You're trying to meet a quota, basically, like within that time frame. Yes. And we're here, like a podcast, we're just, I don't, we're not, th- I'm not thinking about that. You know what I mean? Well, what do you, when, I know we've done all this before. What are some yeah. of your favorite pods? Oh man. Well, obviously Joey B. Of course. Joe Budden uh, podcast, the other people's podcast. Shout out. Oh man. Come no, on. That's now, actually, doc. that's how I know the name from that episode with Maul. Like I'm a big dude, avid uh, Joe Budden listener so like i was like that's really dope that's a good look that's how i knew the name but uh no definitely joe button uh again i mentioned to you earlier howard stern you know that's obviously that's not so much a podcast in today's day and age but that's just a classic i mean to me he's the first original if podcast was ever origined somewhere it's howie you know oh what I mean? dude um also man we, we got to get back on the point about like all the porn stars yeah, and oh my god Jews. absurd what about uh uh the, the stutterer. Oh yeah, of course. What was his name? Is Gary the stutterer? Uh, was, no, or like... Gary the, the the retard. I hate to say it. <laughs> I don't, it's, it's a sensitive word, but yeah, that's Gary the retard. Uh, Sal and Richard, obviously. Oh, um, man. man, no, but uh, the stutterer. I think what was it? Uh, what was his name? I forgot his name. Something the stutterer. I know what you're talking about, though. Wait, it was it wasn't Gary. It wasn't. That was Gary the retard. Okay, because Gary the retard. <laughs> but then they had uh, Wendy the retard too. There yeah, was like, oh, the girl. I yeah, dude. Guys, don't judge me. No, 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 no. This is this, this is, is Howard Stern. This is Howard Stern. This is not, this is not us. Yeah, um, yeah. But man, classic. I mean, that's like, how did you not love I just, Howard? To me, broke that ground. Just kind of how Joe is with like hip hop now, in a sense, because he's just saying shit without any kind of filter, and he's just saying what he feels is is right, right, right. and it's just dope, and like, I, it's it's relatable. It's funny. It's like so. Yeah, definitely. That that's up on the list right now. Have you ever thought about having your own podcast? Uh, man, I've definitely because that it's funny because I love also like just film and like that side of things. Yeah, and, and even though podcasting isn't film, it's still like it's a comical kind of thing. Like I love stuff like that. So I think one day, yeah, man, on the side, like definitely, I, I think it would be a dope thing to transition into. You know, I've just been so focused like with my my music. And just like, you know, making record produce. I also produce and write for other artists outside of my own music. So it's hard to like do everything, you know, but yeah, I love, I, I love talking shit. Like I'll, you know, we'll, well, that's how I was happy to have you on the show because, you know, Silent Giants' focus was on a lot of emphasis of behind the scenes yeah. folks, but because you're a writer and producer for other people, right. it ties in like extremely, Absolutely. extremely well. It's, it's one in the same, you know, I know kind of what it's like to wear that hat, you know? But I also am an artist myself, so I kind of know both sides. You know what I mean? Uh, how did you tap into your artistry like growing up? Yeah, I mean, man, long story short, in a nutshell, like I'm actually a drummer. 
So I started playing the drums when I was like four or five years old. My dad, my parents grew up like 70s, you know what I mean? Like they, he put me on to Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and even like soul, older soul stuff like Stevie Wonder and Al Green, et cetera, uh, Donnie Hathaway. So like I already gravitated to the drums and like just music when I just naturally with no one telling me to do anything. But once my parents saw that I had a natural like likeness for it, they opened up the floodgates for me. They were, my dad was like giving me out Pink Floyd albums and, and King Crimson and Zeppelin. And like, it was really started with rock and rolls for me. A lot of people don't know. Cause like I, I, there was a huge hip hop uh, phase for me, which in my music, there is a big element of right, huge. Yeah. Um, but to bring it back to the origin. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm a, I was originally like a drummer and my goal, even as far back as like, as young as like seven, eight years old, my goal then was to grow up when I'm an adult, when I grow up, I want to be a rock drummer, like in a band, like the who or like queen. And like, I aspire to be one of those types of guys. And then, uh, later on in high school, like I was, but I was in a band and like, even though I was 14, we were just doing battle, the bands, like local things. Well, battle like, of the bands. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's bringing it back. Right. <laughs> I haven't heard that phrase in forever. I Battle know. of the bands. Um, so I was then like, okay, like, man, like I was kind of, you know, uh, trying to execute that dream, if you will, more as I grew up. And um, yeah, I mean, it kind of evolved into stepping away from like being the guy in the back and playing the drums and bands and like the singer sang and the vocalist was the lead guy. And I kind of stepped away from being the background dude playing the drums and I focused more on um, actually following the drumming thing was immediately following that was my obsession with like freestyling and rapping. So I'm actually, I kind of went from a drummer to a rapper, um, to, uh, kind of finding out like who I am like vocally as like a singer. Cause it, it, it's, it's funny cause it all kind of came full circle when I was a drummer and wanting to like, uh, uh, tackle that when I was young. I really love, I always love singers. I loved like vocalists and I always want, you know, sang over Beatles records and sublime songs and stuff. But I always, uh, I guess was too timid to be that guy. Yeah. But what the reason I say it is because when I started to rap and using my voice and like you, not just being a drummer anymore, that's what gave me the comfort to then move into like singing, you know, and, and, and incorporating melody Cause forever I was like, oh, I'm not a singer. Like I'm, I'm gonna be a rapper. You know what I mean? Like hey, we I, all do. I just felt like <laughs> you need to be a certain, have a certain confidence to really like sing, you know? And like I didn't, I wasn't ready. And so my 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 teenage years were just evolving my sound, which kind of eventually started to just incorporate everything I'm influenced by, all my influences. It took me like my whole musical journey to figure out what my sound is. You know, you come from a, a, a creative household. Yeah. I mean, um, I'm the only, I have siblings and obviously I have my parents, but out of my immediate family, I'm definitely the only one who is like artist guy, creative, never really did good academically. You know what I mean? Like, oh, what, what, your, of, what do your parents do? Yeah. I mean, my, uh, my dad's a businessman. He, he owns a hardware supply company. Okay. Uh, he, in Brooklyn, he has a uh, warehouse in, uh, in, uh, in, in Greenpoint and, uh, my mom, is uh like she writes for like the town I'm from where I grew up. It's like uh, she's like the publicist, if you will, for the town like uh, newspaper. It's called the Great Neck Record. Okay, okay. A town called Great Neck. So yeah, oh, just, Long Island. Yeah, exactly. Hail from Long Island. Okay, you know, born and raised. Strong Island, dog. Strong Island, man. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, even though they do things that aren't artistic, like I'm the only artist one out of the bunch. 
they still like, I mean, if it weren't for my parents getting me that drum set when I was little, because they saw that I wasn't like other kids. Like I didn't do well in school. I caused a ruckus, like, like most kids do, but mine was just an extra. It was, there was more because I had ADHD too. Like it was bad. You know what I mean? (laughs) But what was cool with my parents is they took like the therapeutic angle where like they weren't like being sticklers to me about that. They were like being like, yo, but at least he's focused on music. So when he's involved with playing the drums or he's coming home from school and not doing what he's supposed to do, like his homework, at least he's focused on something. So like they, uh, you know, they supported that. Yeah, you started off uh, playing, uh, playing the drums. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what was that first step of you kind of becoming more of the frontal talent? Yeah. Uh, what was that first step for you? Yeah, that first step was transitioning into freestyling every day. So like, it's so weird. Like, and and um, actually, a big part of why I transitioned into becoming obsessed with hip hop, like underground hip hop. I went to this school when I was mad little. It was actually, I went to the school because as a result of my bad behavior in public school, I got sent away to like a bad kid school. You know what I mean? Um, and in a nutshell, like if it weren't for me going to that school, I wouldn't have become obsessed with hip hop. Like the kids there were older than me at the time. I was only like 12 years old. I was very young, very impressionable. And I went into that school, like with my headphones in like, punk like not can't i don't care about the teachers like i don't want to be here but the shit i was listening to was like Jimi hendrix led zeppelin i was in that that's where i was coming from but at the end of my time at that school essentially i came in as this rock kid and i left as this obsessed hip-hop avid hip-hop fan and what really started that for me was seeing woo like just seeing the method man video the M-E-T-H-O-D. Like yeah, that. Yeah. And I watched that in the fucking computer room at that school that I went to. And like from there, man, it just was a rabbit hole of big and like the roots and most deaf and cool G and like just all the, 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 the underground real, like, I mean, you know, when Lord finesse and like, and, and large pro were, were making the beats. You yeah, know yeah. I mean? That's, that's where I'm come. That's where I started to obsess over that. So I kind of, I didn't abandon like the rock shit and being wanting to be in bands, but that's definitely when I transitioned into being more comfortable. Like you asked with my vocal, it started with me feeling comfortable to freestyle. I would just put on RZA and premiere beats every day and just see what I could do and just see, see what could come. And I'm actually, I I started in terms of writing because essentially the, the using my vocal for rapping and freestyling that eventually obviously led into me singing and writing songs and writing lyrics. But, um, if it weren't for just me like trial and erroring over beats, like when I was in this hip hop phase, I wouldn't have evolved into like a singer and a songwriter. It all started with, with hip hop in terms of of being a vocalist in terms of being a musician that goes back, like I said, to when I was little listening to rock and roll, but in terms of being like a a vocalist using my vocal hip hop is responsible for that. Yeah. Uh, th- there comes a point I feel like in a person's life when mm. they're creating and they go, you know what? I could do this for a living. Yes, um, dude, it's what, so funny. What was that point? That for you? was the thought. That's what I had when I, it was. And it's so funny you say that because that was the next thought for me when I started to get the swing of cadence and, and flow and like figuring out my voice. I mean, I was really just mimicking Prodigy from Mob Deep and like I was mimicking those guys. I, I, I literally say that all the time. Uh-huh. Is that the only way to find your voice at first no, no, when you you're writing? Mimic. You have to mimic. No, you have to. And it's not like you're trying. You're. It's not even like you're calculatingly doing it. I was just so immersed in Mob Deep and Woo and like all that shit that that's just what came out of me. I mean, it, it's funny because when you listen back to that stuff, clearly it's just a kid like trying to be like his favorite rappers, but 
at the same time, it, it was natural. It was just, I was doing that because that's exactly. what I was obsessed with. And that will reflect when you go and make music, like the things you are in, and it doesn't even have to be sonic musical things. It could be like something that happened to you in life. It's going to come out when you go and you make music and you go and create. So like, yes, when I, I had the, and I remember it was like, I was about 15 years old, 16 when I was like, yo, I could, I could rap, man. Like I, I, I like I really could do this. Like, like I'm, I knew already when I, from when I was little that I'm going to be in music as a drummer. Yeah. So that was the original goals. I'm going to be in a band. But then when I started getting the swing of rapping and like I would battle kids and shit and like, I started to beatbox too. Like I, I studied Rozelle and like, you know, even beatboxers and shit like that use their vocal to beatbox. I was like, I could do this for real. That was about 15, 16, but I hadn't started making records yet. I didn't start. I was just really good at rapping. And I knew that I like, I was better than any kid my age that was trying to rap. You know what I mean? Cause what was that first step of you mm. being able to, to record yourself and get into the recording artists? Yeah. No, that whole other world, you know, it's one thing to put on a beat and rap and do stuff. And then, but when you go and you press record, it's like, it's, that is a, is something that that helps develop you. That's a whole new frontier. Before, when I was just rapping or doing whatever out loud, like in the room, it's not the same when you like put headphones on and you put the monitor in and you hear your vocal and it's like, it's hard. It's not the same. When you go to a mic, the mic picks up all the flaws. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's like a really HD camera that you see that your hair stubble, like from 20 feet away. It's the same thing that you got to really make sure that the delivery and like the cadence, everything is like in the pocket, you know? So yeah, that was a whole new world when I started doing that, but it was again, all natural because when I started to record, it was just me and my laptop, like in GarageBand. You know what I mean? Like using the internal microphone that came with Garage in my computer. Oh like, shit! Like I was down at the laptop, like doing the thing and the thing in the. You know what I mean? <laughs> doing and the thing. I the I, thing. I never. I, I if I were to step into a real studio <laughs> and like have an engineer there, it would no. It actually I did that. Like so, I had been boom. So eventually, I started to record, and that was a new frontier, and I was getting better at that. And I thought I was getting really dope. But then there was this instance. I remember I went into like a real studio. It was the first time I was in like a studio with a mic and an engineer and there's plugins and there's things. And I was like, it's not the same. So man, like it takes years and years and years. Like even through Interscope, I thought like I was ready then. And then you look back on what I was doing then. It's like, it's like a, a yearbook picture from when you're like, 14 exactly exactly it's cringe you know and you always think you're the best in the moment but you're always getting better and i i truly though do believe that regardless of that idea that in the past like two to three years i've 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 met i've pretty much close to mastering to mastering it i think i'm i'm the best version of myself creatively now than i've ever been you know in the past couple years well you know it's funny that i feel like um I was having a conversation with a friend and we were talking about, you know, um, you know, I'm in the music space. I'm a rapper. and I write mm. songs and I just turned 31 recently. Right. Mm-hmm. And I look at all the rappers that we actually love today. Right. They were all older when they came out. Of course. You come, you think. Jay like, was 28. Eminem was 29, was 28. 30. Yeah. Was, and you know why that is? Because I feel you have a better understanding. Of of you, exactly. your brand, what you represent, what you stand you for. You see, the whole world thinks that those guys were brand new when they dro- like dropped, quote unquote. Yeah. But little did the average 
human realized that Jay-Z, you know, the, we, these guys were mentioning were like late twenties, early thirties. By the time they really made like an impact they wished to make, they had already been working. Jay-Z was rapping since 1986, like with Jazzo and that whole thing. Like, exactly. People don't realize like, no, he didn't just come out of nowhere. He's been doing this for almost 20 years. You know what I mean? So it's funny. It's a funny concept because when, when you're known in a like mainstream kind of way, that's all of a sudden when like you're, when you're new, right? Exactly. But, but again, little did those people know, no, you're not though. Like I already got a deal in 2009 and like did all this shit. I mean, I've done three records with Pharrell. Like I've done so many things that people aren't, they don't even know, you know, um, but yeah, the reason why I think that sometimes you get it when you're older is because it's, it's just bottom line, you just know yourself better. You know what you like. It's like, you know, the I had this conversation with someone recently. An analogy that I made is like, you know, when you're like 13, 14, 15, you don't get coffee. You don't understand it. It's like bitter and weird. Yeah. It's like you're, all the adults drink it. And it's like, I don't, why? It's, it's weird. It tastes disgusting. But then it's like you grow into, you, you just mature and you just, you're, your likes and your interests, they change. And that has everything to do with you being an artist. It has, it's the same thing. You know what I mean? You, you start to do things and, 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 and say things and wear certain things that you would have never worn or said or done when you were 19. You know what I mean? But you just got to grow into yourself. And it's basically growing as a human and like becoming an adult has everything to do with becoming a dope artist and like really having a grip on what you do creatively. Well, look, I always feel like your brand, uh, your sound is a recipe. 100%. So no McDonald's does not come along and make one burger right. and say, oh, no, that was a burger process that was perfected over years yeah. and years and years to develop. Absolutely. So when we see the end product today mm -hmm. of like the fast food That's all chain, we're seeing. We don't see the behind the scenes things. Exactly. When we see Steve Jobs doing these Ted talks and shit showing the new product back in the early two. Like we thought like, Oh, this, but he had been grinding at Apple for 30 years prior, like since the seventies, you know? And it's like, I can name a million guys that aren't even in music. Like, you know, I love the show breaking bad. Of course. Brian Cranston. Right. I mean, he was on Malcolm in the middle, I think in his late thirties, forties, but like he didn't really get his, his Jay-Z moment till Walter White, you know, which I think he was in his fifties. So it's just like, we're always just trying to compete with the shit we did before, but like you're always going to get better. You know what I mean? So like, that's just, that's where I'm at now. I just feel like, and I just feel currently like I'm the best I've, I've ever been. You know what I mean? How, how, how'd you get that first um, kind of break into the industry in, in any way, shape or form? Me personally? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my start, I mean, we could talk about, yes, I've been making music forever since I was a little kid, but, but when it comes down to like my foot in the industry door. Yeah. Uh, I would have to say like interning at the Fader, Fader magazine, which is, you know, like we said it's right up, here. Up the block. Yeah. Cornerstone who owns Fader. Um, I, I got an internship there. I had been doing stuff before that too. I worked at like, you know, a record studio in Long Island. Um, Billy Joel's former saxophone player. He owned the studio. So I was doing like little things here and there, but I would say it wasn't until I interned at the Fader where like, but it's all timing. I mean, it's not, I'm not going to just say Fader's responsible for my way into the industry. It's also because my music at that point had gotten good enough to where if I was at a place like the Fader around people that if I played them my music, like it's an opportunity. My music was good enough to where if I played it for them, I was ready to like have it be liked. If I interned at the Fader when I was 15, I it wouldn't, I don't, I think I was just the universe and where I was at is just was like, all has to do with the timing, you know? 
but yeah, the fader definitely opened all the floodgates for me because that's essentially how I ended up getting a record deal. Because uh, what were you interning there doing? So my former manager, before he was my manager, it's this guy I grew up with from my town, Long Island. Like he's like my big brother's best friend, my sister, like fam. He was my like my big bro growing up. You know, he worked at the fader. He had a job there. He was like in ads, like doing ad stuff. Yeah, and uh, he knew that I was doing this little rap thing and trying to you know, make my way in as, as any bit of, this was more like 17, 18 now. So this is where I've like been making shit like for a little bit now, been rapping, been doing this for a couple years now. So I was like at this point kind of making songs and making mixtape type stuff and uh, just looping him in. Cause I knew that he, he was my big bro. He's someone I knew personally and who's kind of in this world. And like, I just, we started to talk more and more played in my music. Um, and essentially he got me a, the internship at Fader because he had a job there. So he was able to bring me in like interview and like they were with it. You know what I mean? They gave, so they gave me the internship. And, um, then from there, I just, that was a layup for me. But then when I got that opportunity, I went and I really, I did everything I could while I was there to, you know, if I was just an errand boy there, like, but I would, but you know, if someone needed me to make a run to drop something off at wall street, like I went and I did that, you know what I mean? And stuff. And I would pass out stickers of, of band like Santi gold. And I promoted her. That was one of the projects that I was on like early, like 2008, seven. Um, so I would do stuff like that, but like essentially I, I didn't care if I was doing whack shit, like and just running around being a runner because a, I was really young and to a 17, 18 year old, that's like dope as hell. Fuck um, yeah. So I was, but, but my, really my goal was like, I want to use this to like, just meet as many people as I can and impress them with what I've, what I'm doing. And that's essentially, that's what I did. And, and, um, there was a guy in particular who really changed my life. This guy, Rick Cordaro, who's a video director. You may, you probably heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. You, yeah. You know, Rick, <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so Rick, I met him in, in the kitchen of the fader and I remember I knew of his work cause I knew this barrel brothers video he had just done for Beanie Siegel and Ghostface. Like, I don't know if you know that record, yeah, yeah, yeah. but he had done the video. He was like really buzzing on like, and MySpace was the thing at the time. And he was like really buzzing on there and like talked about like in terms of video director, he was that guy. He was like the new guy. He's like, yeah. And I knew somewhat of his name and his work. And so one day I'm at the fader and there he is. I'm like, I know this, this is Rick. And I was like, I was almost starstruck, which most people wouldn't like, who's Rick Cordero? You know what I mean? But to me, I was like, yo, big fan. Um, and we, we started a relationship. Like he just thought I was a nice kid. And before he knew that I did anything musically, he would bring me out to like video shoots to be like, he needed some extras and videos. And yeah. uh, that's really what start. I was in mad videos. Like before I like, that was the, the start. So I was interning at the fader, um, duck down records too, which was out of the fader. They, I was an intern for because I started interning at the fader, but their office was out of the fader. So I did some stuff with Druha from duck down. And like, I remember I picked up be real and, and send dog from Cypress Hill. I drove them the hot 97 one morning. We smoked a J like I had a final that day that I purposely said I'm not doing I'm fuck that like I'm gonna go pick up Cypress Hill and like take them to hot 97 so I did stuff smart, like that smart choice yeah um but but back to I don't mean to go off on a thing but um essentially Rick would start bringing me out to these videos like I was in this Helta Skelta video I was in a Jadakiss video I played the crackhead in a Rick Ross short film it's okay called deeper than rap funny stuff and and uh basically me and Rick's relationship just got better and better like we were just becoming more like friends and stuff still didn't really know what I was doing musically then when I felt like, yo, we're cool now, like, let me, I'm going to play him the music. So, because I didn't want to make it seem like, yo, just listen to my music. I wanted to build a, a relationship first. 
And then I played him what I was working on one day and he, he, he not only did he like it, he was blown away. He's like, I didn't know you made music, let alone you made this. Like I personally love this because that mixtape that I was doing at that time, which no one knows about really, uh, it was called radio in my head. And essentially the band Radiohead, I would take their instrumentation mm-hmm. and like loop it and just make my own songs over there. And it was, the mixtape was called radio in my head. And that was like the play on it. And that's what Rick heard. And that's what like blew him away. And from that point, he was like, dude, like keep sending me music. I, I want to shoot a video for you. Like these records, I'm so moved by this music. I love Radiohead. Like I love what you're doing with this. Like I want to shoot a visual for you. And he was at this point, the top video director in the game. And he, here he is like offering me, offering to shoot me a video for free. Like with nobody, like just him doing it because it's a pet project to him and he's just believes in it, you know? So boom, we ended up shooting a, a video for this record uh, that wasn't on that mixtape. He was like, look, I, I want to shoot you video, he, but you're on to something. Keep making records and keep sending me stuff. So eventually I sent, I kept sending him stuff, but there was this one in particular that when I sent it, he's like, all right, this is the one, this is crazy. I actually have a concept for it. Um, and he, boom, he, we put a video together and we shot it at my house in Long Island, like where I grew up in my basement. Like my mom was there. My, like it was so fun, but like it was a shoot and there was like catering, but there was no, he did it for free. Like all the extras that came out to be in the video and helped and the crew and everything, they were not. That was just them doing favors for Rick. They didn't, we did it for $0. And the, the, the serendipitous thing about this story is that that's essentially the video that then got me a record deal. Two weeks after we shot that video, P Diddy called my manager. He called my manager and he called Rick's partner at the time. This guy, Steve Carless. I don't know. You no, no, I don't know Steve. Um, yeah. Um, two weeks after we did that video for free that like we just decided to shoot two weeks later, I had, a meeting with Diddy and he offered me a deal. I met with him. Like I went to meet him at this place, crash mansion. I don't, you know, remember that spot, but, uh, the video went live. The video was not out. We had this video internally that was edited and done and it's out. You can find it now. And, uh, it's been out. And, um, but, but backing up to this time period, we shot it two weeks later, but within that two weeks before like leading up to puff wanting to meet me, it was just being internally circulated. Like, uh, Rick's partner at the time, this guy, Steve, that I mentioned, he had access, he was meeting with, he played it for Neo was one person he played it for. He played it for a couple guys at Atlantic who, who were A&Rs there. Just kind of get the game, like, be like, yo, check. But I hadn't put out anything. Even the mixtape I had done that impressed Rick, nothing was out. This was just stuff I was making. I was showing people. Yeah. So this video was not out. No. What Diddy saw was a private link video that just like everyone else that Steve was able to play it for. He just was blown away by the visual. But the cool thing is, is that the way the Diddy thing happened was Diddy just coincidentally reached out to Rick randomly having nothing to do with me because he wanted Rick to shoot. Again, Rick was an in-demand video director in right. general. So Diddy wanted him to shoot for a couple artists that he was working with at the time. And they would meet a bunch of times. They met about three or four times. And on the fourth time, Rick, that whole time though, Rick was like telling me what was, he's like, yo, this could be good. Like, the video we just shot, I could maybe eventually play it for Diddy. Like this shit's going good. Like, and boom, he did. He found a moment in one of the meetings he had where check this out. Like, look at this video I just did with this kid. He pulled it up on the screen like this and Diddy saw it. He's like, I want to meet this kid tonight. And I got called 
by Rick's guy, Steve. They called my guy, Matt, who was working at the fader who became my manager. They all went with me to meet did like I sat down with it. We first met up at this spot, this, this club, but then we went back to like where he was staying. It was the London hotel. I remember these things. So like clearly, like it was yesterday. I cannot, every detail, um, went to the London hotel. He had like the whole floor blocked out for him. And there was like 20 people there. Cassie was there. Like people were there. Um, and he sat down and that's when things were quieter. We weren't out at a club and it was intimate. And he was like, all right, tell me everything. Tell me the whole thing that I just told you how about I'm a drummer and boom, boom, boom. And like Wu-Tang and I love what I do, what I love and how this evolution has gone down. I literally just told him that. And he was like, I love it. Like, I, let me marinate, but like, I want to, I want to do it. Like I want to do a deal. And so we left that meeting. I left that meeting with like interest from Puff. And while we were waiting for a legit offer, like to be sent from him. We were able to take that story and like leverage it to get other meetings being like, yo, Diddy is on this. Like, and, uh, I was able to have people come and get involved and set up these meetings for me and use that Diddy story as like leverage to show other labels. Um, and yeah, I mean, essentially it ended up on Jimmy Iovine's desk and, um, no shade to puff. I always say this, like <laughs> I didn't end up going with puff obviously cause Jimmy and Polo, the Don Polo, the Don is a producer I signed with at Interscope in 2009. That's who I ended up going with it. It went in like this chain of command. It went from Steve who helped with Rick and, and the video we were doing, um, to this guy, DJ, uh, more Millie, who's Jimmy Iveen's nephew and this guy, Manny Smith who worked at Interscope. So it went from them to Polo and then the end zone was Jimmy. Like Polo was the guy who brought it on home to Jimmy. And that's why I essentially signed with Polo because he was the guy that that really closed it and was like you need to sign this kid. And so that's that's essentially why my deal was through Polo slash Interscope. Like it was called okay. Zone 4 is the name of his label. And um yeah, I ended up I mean they gave me the world as as a 19-year-old kid like I'm getting checks offered to me that like I wouldn't even fathom I could get at this age. You know what I mean? They yeah. would, they gave me the world. Jimmy really loved the video. He loved just like Diddy did. I never forget the day I that same day I flew out to Interscope. They flew me out to meet everyone. Tim was there. Timberland was there. Jay, I met Jay. Jay was there. Um, the same day I played Tim the video. Like everyone saw the video and like it was crazy. They loved me. They, I, I was feeling really good because I was like, damn, like you always hear those stories of labels like messing up an artist's vision or like not co-signing what they want to do creatively. But here I am, they're, they're playing this. This is what I did in my basement. This is my natural. This is what I personally wanted to make. And now they're playing it for everyone. And um, it's funny, right around when I signed with Interscope, they put that record from the video that I'm telling you yeah. about on this um, LeBron James More Than a Game soundtrack, which is this that record forever by Wayne Drake. Drake, Wanda yeah, Shiver, huge. Ever, man, you know? That was, that, that, I don't think anyone realizes that song was on that project. That wasn't on any one of their albums, Drake, Yay, Eminem. They, right, it was that was, made for that was on the same album that they then put my record Frozen, the one we shut the video for. They put that on the same album. So it said to me, damn, they, they're getting behind what I'm doing. They're not changing it. Like, this is dope. Like they just, boom, they signed me and they put me on there. They were really, I was a pri I was very prioritizing to, to them in their mind, but it didn't change until about six months into the deal. Um, things changed, you know what I mean? Like the, the everything changed, like the vision, the sound, everything like it was, essentially 
my fears and the darknesses I had heard about the game, that's when those things started to implement. You know what I mean? Could you elaborate a little bit more about yeah. like how those things um, changed and transpired? Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, like everything was kind of cool. And then there was this point where. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. They're like, okay, like, but we got to make a record now. You know, the frozen thing, the video thing we did, the more than a game soundtrack, it was a good like little look, but we, what's the, what's the record. And you know, that was my first learnings of like (laughs) the label and and what the label world is like at the end of the day. That's when I first felt like, shit, I'm just like a product. I'm just a puppet. They don't, you know what I mean? That literally that's when I felt that is that like, they just want to churn out hit records regardless if it has anything to do with you or not. You know what I mean? Not all the time, but essentially that's their goal. They want hit records. You know what I mean? So when the, when the goal became, okay, what's Jared's hit? Like, what's the hit going to be? That's when it all became very like, just not, it it got dark. You know what I mean? uh, And, and And to clarify that, what I meant was Polo brought this song to me. This is specifically what I mean. Polo brought this record to me that there was just a beat and like a hook that he put down, like a hook idea. And I knew right away when he played it for me, he's like, yo, this is what I see for you. This is what I see you doing. And when I heard it in my mind, I was like, uh, I don't know. This isn't me. I pulled my manager aside. I was like, uh, this record, uh, I don't know if we want to go here, man. Like this, this has nothing to do with me. This is like, and you have to see and hear the song to really know what I'm talking about. Right. But just know that it was a, a 180 from what I came in the building as. It was completely different. Um, it was basically Polo's vision. It was what he saw me as and how he saw me in the world. And man, here I am at 19, 20, and I just, I got all these huge, legendary big dogs around me. Um, and I trusted them. And I was like, you know what? I'll try it. We'll do this record. And I, fi- I finished writing it. I did it. I cut vocals for it, even though knowing like, ah, this isn't really me. And we tucked it away. We put it away, whatever. Like my manager was kind of of the mindset. The worst that happens is we just, it just sits there in Pro Tools. Like it doesn't come out. We don't have to put it out. But then things really changed from there when Polo called me one day and he was like, yo, I just played Jimmy the record. Like it's done now. It's produced. It's mixed. And like he, it's his fate. He's literally, he's obsessed with you now. So it went from Jimmy knowing about me and like kind of getting what I do. But you have to understand Jimmy Iovine, He's overseeing Gaga, Eminem, like this dude is a deer in headlights. He doesn't know what the new upcoming guy that just got signed to his company is doing really. When Polo played him this record, he was all in. And that's the best and worst thing that happened to me. It's the best thing that happened to me because here you have Jimmy Iovine who now loves me and he has his arm around me and he's inviting me to his house and I'm with Gwen Stefani and I'm eating. I did records with Dre. I worked with Dre for seven hours. Like I recorded a record for Detox with Dre. All my publishing deal, everything that came like later on, all these continuous checks that I got were solely off the fact that Jimmy Iovine now is telling everyone about me. You know what I mean? And so it's the best and worst thing because 
it put money in my pocket. It put legends on to like everyone wanted to work with me now. Cause Jimmy was talking about me about to everyone. So that was great. It, that was life changing for me. And I felt like, wow, like shit, you know what? I'll do this record. If this is how my life's going to be. I want to, I liked it. Like Chris Brown, like, <laughs> I, like I was with Chris was like, like it's crazy. It's just like, I couldn't believe the world I was living in. I mean, the pol- the access Polo had and like, this is all new. This before this, I was in my basement just making shit in Garage Band. So you have to know that, like, as a young kid, I'm seeing all this. It's very enticing, and I'm like, shit. You know what? I'll do this record, and I'll be this guy if this is the if it's going to lead to success. I essentially thought that this will equal success for me, and it's the worst thing that happened to me because it's just not true to who I am. It wasn't. It wasn't true to me. It, it had nothing to do with what I came in the building doing. And it seemed like sellout-ish, you know? And that's why it was the worst thing for me. But I think it was the best thing for me more than it was the worst thing because it was the biggest trial and error for me because when I eventually left Interscope and I went independent, I knew what to do because I had just been through the the boot camp of of the industry. I just had the illest, I just had the illest like school you, uh, someone could get like on the music industry. I literally was a product of it like living it. And I knew how it worked. I knew about publishing. I knew about how things work on records and in the studio and just everything of that nature. I, I learned so that when I came out and I then released that Charlie Brown record and all those things I did with Illmind, this guy that I work with Illmind, um, you know, of course. So Illmind, boom, he's a great podcast. Oh yeah. Blap chat. Yes. One of my favorites too. Not just cause he's my homie, but I'm, I can't believe I didn't bring that up before. Great. Very informative. Great. Uh, it's like fun but also informative yeah it's very funny I like when they do their blapper crap thing and yes. they, they listen to beats and shit but yeah um, Illmind was my guy I mean even when I was at Fader when I was in the Helter Skelter video he was the producer on that record so we had known each other since then but then when I went indie I was like oh look I feel like the label messed up my head like I didn't know what I was doing for a minute. Like I want to get back to just making music, how I started doing it, but I want to do it with you. And I want to just, let's do it in my basement. Let's just make natural dope shit without trying to make a hit record or trying to reach the radio or trying to do all those things that they try to do when you're signed to a label. And we ended up making this body of work that essentially then formed me a fan base. You know what I mean? You left Interscope, but you were saying that Jimmy was really behind and pushing mm-hmm. this sound and this particular record. Yeah, but what was it inside of you? Because the, obviously the average person would just be like, "Word." Yeah, well, the, I kind of was like word, you know. But deep down, yeah, deep down, I was like, "Something, this isn't right," you know. Like this isn't me. Like not only were the records and the music, but like the dopeness of my art. It was in patterns. It was like it was dope before I got signed. And not so much when I was in the deal. When I got out of the deal, it was like dope again. And it just goes to show you that when you just do what you want and you have a vision and you just want to make what you want to make and create what you want to create, that's when really, that's when people will come. It's funny because the record that I did with Interscope, the video has millions of views and actually was like the number one song in Greece. Like I'm a celebrity there. But what's funny is that had like 20 million, that has like 20 million views on Vivo and it was a big record, whatever, but it didn't translate into any ticket sale. It didn't make, it just, people knew the song. Mm. And, and, and if that record really went, I would have been a case of, oh, that's the guy that sings that song, but they don't really know me. You know what I mean? Interesting. And it's so funny that when I put out Charlie Brown and all this like real organic shit that I ended up putting out later, it didn't get 20 million Vivo views, but it got, I mean, half a million, but at least 
the resonation is there. That's resonating. Right. That's right, right. translating into like merch sales and ticket sales and like people tattooing lyrics on their bot. And now I felt like at that point, a movement started a real one, an organic one without a label where I just put the video out on YouTube without getting this, like just Jared, like premiere thing, you know what I mean? And you just, and it's shit, look, if shit's dope, people will come. That's what I've learned. And you just gotta, from then I just honed in on that and I learned about it. I learned myself better since then. I've just really known, I, I've learned my gut so well that I just know based off of what my gut says, what to do and what not to do. Now, as far as for, um, you know, when you leave a major label like that, like Mm -hmm. an institution like that, what were the first steps for you to start releasing music independently? Mm -hmm. How do, how do you do that for people who are releasing music independently successfully? How do you do that? What were your first steps? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was a little different because coming out of a major label, they own everything you just did. You know what I mean? So they own the masters. So I couldn't, I couldn't bring any of those records with me, but it's good because I was starting fresh and I almost didn't want to. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously you're not going to, depending on the structure of your deal, obviously, but most of the times you won't end up being able to take that stuff with you. So you're gonna have to start over. Um, and then honestly, in the very beginning of like leaving the label, I was discouraged And I was like sad about it. And I was like, I was of the naive mind of like, I got to be signed to a major. Like this is like, I got to have that validation. I got to be a major artist. Can't be India. She's whack, you know, (laughs) but that's naive. And, and, and once I was out of the deal for, let's say like almost a year of just creating with Illmind and making records. And I would say about six months to a year into like just being independent, I didn't really have any worries anymore. I actually was the opposite the way I felt when I was leaving the deal I felt the opposite I was like you know what I like being independent like I need this this is like I could do whatever I want no one's gonna tell me no no one's gonna control it and as soon as I saw a reaction from the Charlie Brown song that was when I was like damn like this this actually this this will be okay this is this is good I get up too late and I head to the classroom I'm wondering why Wasting my time, losing my mind Every day at school, they all laugh at me They say, Charlie Brown, you're such a tragedy Picking on me in the parking lot Just swallow your pride, don't cough it up So my initial leaving a major, there's definitely discouragement And there's definitely like, shit, what do I do now? I'm sure artists that are, people that are listening You might feel that but just know that if you keep working on your art, it's going to get better. You're going to know yourself better. And why I say this is because I got to a point where I, I was okay with being independent and it, the transition ended up being better. It was in my favor. I wanted to be independent. You know what I mean? And it's funny because since then I've been independent. Now I'm now like, I don't want to do like, if I do a deal, it's got to be crazy because I'm not just going to give away what I've worked hard for my brand and my logo and my merch and like all these things that I myself have created. I don't want to just sell that away again now. You know what I mean? I want to, and I'm not saying I'm anti-label either and I'm not saying people should be, but I I think you should be cautious of labels. You should be cognizant of, of that. Right. You know what I mean? But, but my two cents to to this thought is like, I'm not anti-label, but, I'm anti-label if you don't have your thing, if you don't have your, 
if you don't know what you're doing yet. It took me years to really know my fan base, know the audience, what the age is, down to the specifics of where they're from, like what type of shit they like, you know, what my brand looks like, what the merch looks like, what's my message. You know, it's trial and error. And then when things resonate off trial and error, that's when you know, oh, that's that makes sense. And this makes sense. And like the Charlie Brown thing, oh, that people like this. And you figure yourself out. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, and again, if there's a time and place for a deal, do it. You know what I mean? I just don't think people, bottom line is, I don't think people, uh, especially myself, should just sell themselves away for a quick record deal. Like I know that it's enticing and it's like, oh shit, like I got signed. Like that's every guy, that's every artist's dream, right? But don't get smoke and mirrors. You know what I mean? If you have leverage and you have some, that's what I'm saying is to work on is that's the, that should be the goal is like do it DIY. And then when you gets to a point where like, it's like really working and it's kind of like similar to Joe button or a podcast, like they started like long ago, they were just on whatever. I think they were just putting it up on SoundCloud or YouTube. And over time, like they got to a point where like Spotify is like, let's do a deal. You right, know what I mean? Right. So what I'm saying is hold out until like, it's like shark tank, man. Like don't go on shark tank until you've done X, Y, Z. Cause that's what they want. And if you've done X, Y, Z, you have leverage. That's when Mark Cuban's like, Oh, you've done 3 million in a year. Well, I'm into it now. You know what exactly. I mean? So just don't rely on a label until you've relied on yourself for a long enough time. That's basically it. What, what about the the other aspects of your career as far as um, writing and producing for others? Yeah. Like, how did that kind of take shape for you? Yeah. Um, it's funny because when I signed the deal as an artist, like I had a lucky beat here and there. Like the, the song and the video we did that got me a deal, I produced that. But it was like a lucky beat. I wasn't like, I made a dope beat. I struck lightning in a bottle. And then it was just, I, I always then from there out wanted Illmind. I wanted other guys to do that for me. So I wouldn't have to put the energy into it, but boom, fast forward when I left the label and I was independent now, I had gotten by then so much better at producing and, and even my, again, going through Interscope and working with Pharrell and working around Dre and being in the studio and working, you literally absorb everything these guys are doing and you're getting better. So when I left, I was a much better writer, much better producer, even though it was like sad that I, again, I was discouraged that I had to leave. I was so much better because I just went through boot camp. You know what I mean? Right. So yeah, it was at that point where I said, you know what? I could, I could actually produce for other artists. I'm at a point now where I've done this long enough where it came a point, like I said, I was making a lucky beat here and there in the beginning, but come like out of the Interscope deal, I was producing like 70% of my music with Illmind. I was like really becoming my own producer because um, I was just living and breathing in logic and just every day, like practice makes perfect. And yeah, it came a point where artists like other kind of indie artists, like this guy, Hoodie Allen, who's actually a really good friend of mine. He's a pretty big rapper. Um, G easy guys like that. Like we did it. I went on tour with hoodie and G we, we went on tour in 2013 and it was guys like that who were reaching out to me based off of like the shit I was doing with ill mind. And the, that stuff was kind of moving around a bit. So other artists within my circuit, within my niche would, you know, catch wind of it. And they'd be like, yo, I want to beat from Jared. All right. So hoodie and these guys would come to me to then produce for them. So that's when I really started to be like, damn, like the same realization I had at 15 where I, damn, I could do this for real Yeah, is, you know, I could be a producer for other artists, not only an artist, but I can actually be a writer and producer for other artists. And, uh, yeah, that was around 2012, 13, where I really started to be like, 
producing for other acts. You know what I mean? And, um, yeah, yeah. Um, it came a point where Sony ATV, who's the publishing company I'm signed to see, they signed me in 2010 just because Jimmy said, do it. They, nothing I did, (laughs) nothing that I did warranted me getting a pub deal. When you get a pub deal, it's because you've written or produced right. some great notarized, like notarized Charted, shit. Right, people, it's renowned. Like, yo, we want to do a deal with you. I just got it because Jimmy Iovine, again, he I, he put his arm around me. So it's funny. I was still in that deal, and I still am now. But I I actually became a legit producer and songwriter, and I started to. That's when I started to really utilize them for that because I never really was before. Again, I just got the deal based off of Jimmy. But now that I've become this producer writer full fledged, like I was reconvening with them and reconnecting. And, um, that's, there was a point I did a a stint for like a year, two years where I was literally really focusing on just songwriting and producing. Like Sony would fly me out to LA. Like I was in sessions for Rihanna. I wrote a record for Rihanna. She heard it. She didn't cut it. Like it didn't end up on her project because she, they ended up going a different direction um, the anti album, mm-hmm. but I was very close. We were very close. I was in those rooms, like writing for, I was doing stuff for kid Inc and stuff here and there. And I was really focused on like, okay, I'm going to really, I want to, even though I'm going to still do my artist, I'm not putting that away. I just really wanted to focus more on writing and producing. This is around 2014, 15, those two years, I was really just doing that a lot. And that actually led me to my new managers who I'm with my, my whole team that I'm with now if it weren't for my producing and writing that I was being plugged into, I wouldn't have, it wouldn't have led me to, to them who now manage me as an artist. I had a great conversation on a um, past episode of silent giants with mm. a guy named Jeff Giese, uh, mm. Jefferson A&R over at BMG uh, publishing. And we had a great conversation and debate over, is it better for new artists to sign publishing deals mm-hmm. versus going in, for the record deal. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, yes. He's like, of course. he's all the artists uh-huh. are focused so much on the record deal. Yeah. But the publishing side. Oh yeah. Is allows an artist to be free and to grow and to develop that sound. Does that work for you as yeah, well? Yeah, Because essentially a pub deal has no restraints on you as an artist. That's just work for hire. They want to put you in a room. See, that's the cool thing about being a writer and producer is I don't have to, feel like I'm sacrificing my art. If someone wants to make a polka record and they want to hire me to be the guy to produce it, I can make a polka record <laughs> without feeling like this isn't me. It doesn't matter because it's not for me. I'm just being a, I'm a vessel for another artist. Like I'm just a Van Wick to, for them to get out what they want to get out. So yes, in that sense, very much like your artistry will do what it does, but I won't, I will also say though, doing a pub deal, like you, at the end of the day, you want to own your publishing. You don't, you actually don't want to give your publishing away. Like you want to own it. That's the ideal world we live in where if you don't do a pub deal, then simply you own your publishing. And then if you get a hit record somehow, you're going to just hundred percent collect all that money. You know what I mean? Um, but again, it depends on the structure of the situation. Everyone has different deals. Um, but look, uh, if the money's right, sometimes it, it, it could help, you know what I mean? And, um, the, where I was when I did that deal, like, uh, damn. Yeah. I mean, we were also, it was different for me because I, I did that deal based off of the Jimmy Iovine prioritization, yeah. meaning like, yeah, I'll give you my publishing. Cause I know this shit's about to go. So even if I give you a percentage of my pub, I'm still going to get 
the lion's share because Jimmy's about to make it a hit record. Right. Exactly. You know what I mean, so yeah, I mean, it depends, but, but in terms of your restraints as an artist, publishing doesn't really have anything to do with that. That's just a pub deal is just simply like, let's make records for other people. Let's get publishing on records and share it with whichever company you do the deal with. You know what I mean? Because oh, well, let's say for instance, you, you, you have your publishing deal, but mm. the publishing deal uh, ends. You've still mm. built all those relationships. Oh, absolutely. So hundred percent. And essentially that's what I did at Interscope. When I left Interscope, I left being, I'm still friends with Pharrell. Like I saw right. him a year ago. Uh, that was the last I saw him, but we re- we were like we were just with each other it's like nothing changed you know what i mean right a lot of guys i mean man yeah even being in the label you can still leave that world with a whole new rolodex you know what i mean um but the pub thing is is definitely more of like a scene because it's 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 like a community of writers and producers that are always working and doing you know new things so you're constantly meeting not not like important like influence people like Pharrell and like those but you're meeting amazing talent constantly which is always gonna advance you you know i I also think yeah all those rooms i've been in you know writing and producing for other artists again i'm still absorbing what i'm doing there so i'm I'm, I'm bringing that with me into my own arsenal exactly and you're just sharpening your sword you know what i mean well that's the the one thing i learned from being uh, here in new york from being an artist in virginia to being Mm -hmm. an artist in new york um, it is the importance of people, you oh, yeah. know, the, the concept and the notion of a self-made man yeah. does not really exist. You no. need people. Well, every state, so, so, not to cut you off, no, but cut me off. every self-made man, they were that guy in the beginning too. They exactly. were the one trying to network and meet people. Like they needed someone else to piggyback off of in order for them. Everyone, every, every CEO, Jimmy Iovine. I mean, you, they, the, the, uh, the defiant ones doc, I yeah. mean, that, that went into that of how he was just like, the errand boy for the studio. And then one day John Lennon was there and it's like the rest changed. You know what I mean? And it's just like, yeah, that's, they're kind of, it never is unless you're the son of a billionaire. You're never really self-made unless you, unless you do it, you got to self-make it. You know what I mean? Uh, you mentioned uh, that you have new management. What is good management mm. to you? Like I, I know a lot of people great say question. my manager, my manager, Yeah, but what does a good manager do for you? Great question. And I have a great answer. It's, Great management are people that understand what it is you do creatively, want to help, not to change it or to, you know, do anything, taint it in any way. They just want to help make it bigger and they just want to help add to whatever it is you're building. And when they do that and they don't micromanage and they just let you go and create, that's when you have good management. The best management are people that don't tell you what to do and what to wear and how to do it. They trust that you are the artist and you know what the art should look and sound like. And they're the, they're just there to help facilitate it and make it bigger. You know what I mean? And build it and build it out. You know what I mean? And that that's the beautiful thing is like, that's really what you want. Like you don't want to just quote unquote sign with a manager to feel validated and feel like, because that, that manager, who knows, it could be the, the worst move you've made. You know what I mean? And again, you just also need to trust in your gut. It really just boils down to how your gut feels. I knew when I started working with my team now, um, in my gut, I was like, man, this is, this is like smooth sailing. Like it just got a good energy. And that's an indicator that you have good management. You know what I mean? When you feel like they're not altering what you're doing in any way, they just want to back it and support what you're doing. 
That's great management. Uh, what is th- does the manager negotiate? Put you in the right rooms, facilitate. Mm-hmm. Let's say, for instance, now you know Jared has a finished product. Right. The the EP, the album is done. Mm-hmm. What do you expect of your manager to do with that finished product that you've produced? Yeah, and that's funny because that's also that's like part two of my answer. The thing I immediately think of is them just letting you go and create and like letting you be free without changing you. So that's what I immediately jump to. But yes, obviously like once it's all said and done and it's time to go, like you also want a team that like has a plan and you all communicate on what the plan is and you reach just like goals that you want to just knock off a list. It's just like do this, the tasks that you do for the day. It's the same thing. If, if you have management that has a plan with you and the material and the content that you have, um, it's all about execution. It's like, step one, step two, step before we get to 10, we got to do one, two, three, four, five, six, et cetera. Whereas before I've had, you know, management things where it felt like we were just jumping to 10 and it's Mm. like, you can't, you can't just jump to 10. You have to do X, Y, Z. You know what I mean? And when every move is made as a team and everyone understands the page that we're on and that's when you win, you win when it's clear on what the artist wants. The management understands what they want. They agree with it, same page, and then they execute how they're going to get to where they get to the end goal. You know what I mean? Okay. And um, if you have both of those things with, with a team, then you're, you've got a good team. For independent artists, mm-hmm. when you say uh, team, what are, the, what are the team members that you need mm. to, to propel that vision? Yeah, I mean, essentially, like, at the end of the day, I don't even like to say like manager um, because it could just be someone who really understands you and will do what's best for you. So whoever that is at the end of the day, um, that that's really what the team is. And and for me, I, I'm lucky to have three guys uh, specifically who, who help manage me. Um, but you know, the whole thing of like having a publicist and a, and a, this and an agent, all this stuff, that's, that's part of the team, but that should come later. I think the initial like hub of the team are just the people who are on the ground with you who want to like help build it from the ground up. All that other stuff should come later when it's already built, you know, like a lawyer and a booking agent, etc. cetera. Again, it's, I, I should add those people in because those are key parts to a team like before here I was just coming from my agent's office and we're just catching up I was showing him all the content that's getting ready to come out and just catching him up and so I'm I've been at a point but I think early early beginning for an artist that's starting out just find those one two maybe three guys or girls that really like understand what you're doing and want to help facilitate your vision you know that's the first thing um and then once it's kind of realized then you could, you know, pull in the booking agent, pull in the lawyer, pull in the publicist, you know, but, but, but again, none of that stuff has to come until you've learned who you are, what it is you're trying to say. And you have the initial hub of people that want to help bring it to life. You know what I mean? Um, when you first got your, your uh, first record deal, when you went to Interscope, yeah. um, if I were to go to Interscope or Atlantic or a label right now, Word. Where the fuck do you go find an attorney? Yeah. So I mean, how, how'd you, how'd you find that? Yeah. Um, the attorney thing for me also ties into my uh, crazy story. Like the whole Diddy, when all that stuff was happening. I, yeah. Like Diddy reached out to me and I met with him and I didn't have a lawyer. This guy's about to send me a contract and I don't have a lawyer to look at it. Right. Um, just so happens that my former manager at that time, 
he knew this guy since he was very little, this guy, Jimmy Douglas, who is a veteran sound engineer. He's Timberland's en- uh, engineer. I, said, I know that name. Yeah. You've probably, he's this guy with dreads. Like you've definitely seen, have you ever seen fade to black? The yes. Doc? Of course. You know the scene where Tim is like eating a banana and like water and he's yes, like playing, yes, yes, yes. he's playing him beats and then he plays him dirt off your shoulder. Yep, yep. There's a dude sitting at the board with dreads. That's Jimmy Douglas. Okay. That's, okay. So any record you've ever heard by Timberland, Pony, uh, you know, one in a million one of any any record that tim has produced that we know jimmy mixed that record okay but jimmy also mixed like led zeppelin record like jimmy was like an engineer at atlantic records in the 70s like mixing the rolling stones and shit like just so happens that this guy jimmy douglas who i'm telling you about grew up in the town that i'm from he grew up in the house of my manager's mom so my my manager real quick he his mom growing up former manager his mom growing up had like a nanny that lived in the house with them. Um, and she had her kids live in the house too. They eventually just moved in with them. And one of the kids ended up being the great Jimmy Douglas. So he li- he grew up essentially where I'm from. And fast forward when, when this, all this was happening with Diddy and there's interest and like things are brewing. Matt, my former manager who was at the fader, he reached out to Jimmy cause he had a, a relationship with him through his mom growing up and everything. And, um, he always kind of wanted to hit up Jimmy about stuff he was doing, but he never had anything kind of concrete to send him. But now it's like, we have a video and we have interest from labels. And so he sent that to Jimmy Douglas. The reason I'm talking about all this is because Jimmy Douglas flew up from Miami. That's where he lives. And he helped, he got my lawyer for me. He got, so when we were in, when all this was happening and I was in need of a lawyer to look over all this shit, that's when Matt reached out to Jimmy, Jimmy helped out and he got me my lawyer. And, and he showed him the video and we all met with him. He was like, I'm in, let's, let's do it. Like he saw that a deal was coming and a big, you know, there was interest from a big, you know, Diddy. So the, yeah, Theo, the name of him is Theo. He, he was very into it. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was kind of like serendipity. How it all happened, man, was just like stars aligning. It didn't make any sense to me, but it just one thing after the next was just the thing with the video and the internship. And then we got Rick and then now Diddy wants, now I'm getting a lawyer and it's just, it was crazy. But not to go off on a tangent, but no, no, this is super important. Jimmy Douglas, fun fact: he he connected me with my lawyer, who I'm still with to this day. Yeah. Uh, um, when you're but yeah, with, you need a lawyer for sure to look over everything. Yeah, when you're when you're with lo- your your lawyer and you're you're in that uh, situation of negotiating a contract, are you in there in like a big room and yeah. negotiating, or is it like via telephone? It's, like, well, yeah, the, you're not uh, you're not with the it, it's it's the lawyer and the company and the the business department and mm-hmm. the label. They're the ones going back and forth and your lawyer has to be the one on the, on the front lines, like negotiating for you and like getting it good for you. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm not really, Theo will report back. My lawyer, he'll report back to me okay. what's happening and th- what's, this is this and that's that. But yeah, I'm not really in those, even at Interscope, I'm not in those staff meetings. Like the artists shouldn't be in those meetings. You know, you want your buffer, which is your team essentially, or your attorney to be handling these things for you because at the end of the day, you should be cognizant of the business side and how this works. But for the most part, you need to just focus on the art. You know what I mean? I mean, you need to be aware and you definitely should know your homework on the, the, the business side of the game. But you need to put, I'd say, 90% of your energy into the craft and like the art. You know what I mean? Okay. That's what I do. Um, so what's going on with you now? Yeah, yeah. So, man, fast forward all this time. Um I've been for the past year been creating this, what will be a project uh, with, with my new team. They, add, they actually, um, they manage Alessia Cara. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure you've heard of yeah, her. Of course. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they, uh, they're great, man. And I've been working with them for the past year on a, a body of music. Um, I think is the best stuff I've ever done. And, uh, you know, initially when I signed with them, we were thinking, do we go the label? I mean, there was, because there was interest again, I've had interest from labels since I left Interscope. I've had uh, interest from, I did an album in 2013 called Boom Bap and Blues with, with Static Selector. You know, you've heard of that? Yeah. So Joey Come Badass on, was on it. Yeah. Action Bronson. <laughs> yeah. Like, Lil, Lil Finn yes. from MOP was on it. Yes. Like, so when that came out, like I had Republic people coming, you know, Republic Records. Like I've had interest since, but being what I went through with Interscope, I know how to move and I know just not hold, to hold out and to hold on to my guns. You know what I mean? And stick to my, to my shit. Um, so when I signed with with my management team, our initial goal was, do we do a label again? Like maybe, but when we realized that, you know, unless I'm going to get a groundbreaking deal, there's really no point. We're just in an age now where it's the wild west and anyone could be anything at any moment. And a label isn't really the gatekeeper anymore. They're, they're not, you know, the gatekeeper now is like SoundCloud and Spotify playlisting. That's the gatekeeper now. So we decided to, to turn down that, whole thing and just do it indie and do it ourselves and hey if they come back around later due to what we've started ourselves that's great because that'll just up the ante you know what i mean again i'm not anti-label if the situation is right right but i'm also not going to just go and rush and go just sign a deal just to feel validated that's not going to do anything for me so yeah that's currently where i'm at is we're, we're very close we're about this is exclusive info too we're about a month out from releasing the first record it's a single. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah, yeah. You drop, drop the bomb right now. <laughs> there you go. But um, yeah, I'm, we're getting close. Like we, we have all the content. I mean, that's what I've been doing for the past year is just putting together the content. Um, there will be an EP and then an album, and it's all trajectory. Like it's all in the pipeline. But right now, we're just focused on a song. Um, that to me is like I think it's undeniable. And um, yeah, and we're getting ready to release that soon. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you, man. Yeah, That's huge. Dude, yeah, yeah, it's dope. It feels good. It feels good. Um, you know, lastly, before we get out of here, yeah. I always ask, um, what yeah. have you sacrificed yeah. to achieve what you have achieved in your career? Man, um, definitely like 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 get togethers with friends and things I've had to miss and like, you know, um being on tour where like there'll be like, you know, a, a birthday or a wedding at the very same time. Like you know, I, I gotta, I gotta do what I gotta do though. It's like, there's no schedule with someone like me. So when things pop up, I gotta cater to that, you know? So there's definitely been, you know, things, there was a period too, where like, even when I was signed, like I was really out in LA, like in the studio out there, like in the mix. And I wasn't talking to my friends as much. And I'm not saying that that's a dope sacrifice. Um, that's actually the, it's like, I could have not done that, but it, it kind of, man, it consumes you. And, and what I'm saying is don't let it consume you to a point where you're like alienating the people that matter in your life. That's what I learned as a young kid. Like I got too sucked into like caring about all that dumb shit. Um, so just walk a, you know, know the line, you know, do as much as you can, but also know, you know, there's people that care about you and you have to cater to those people as well. You know, but there's definitely been things I've missed out on uh, just being on tour and having to be in the studio late night. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, it never ends. You know, it's it's always you're always even like, you know, the other night I randomly, you know, someone wanted to work on a record at like 8 p.m., you know, and I couldn't have dinner with her anymore. So, 
You know, right. I had to sacrifice dinner. Exactly. Boom. So, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it, it's an, it's an ever evolving journey. And, um, it just, there's, I don't want to come up for air until like, until I can. That's what I, that's the metaphor. It's like, I'm just going to stay underwater working with my head down and I don't want to look up until like, I'm feeling very good about what I've been building. When it's time know? to breathe. Yeah, exactly. When it's time to breathe. That's, that's the metaphor. You know what I mean? And that, that's, that's a jewel right there to just leave everyone listening with. You know what I mean? That's really what matters. Just focus, man. Eye on the prize. That's really, I think, let's, if you're going to call this an episode, call this eye on the prize. Mm. I think that's dope. You know, just, just focus. That's the pleasure of interviewing a songwriter. <laughs> yeah. Do you name your episodes? No. Okay. But it maybe yeah, this time. See, boom. I'm always <laughs> thinking like a, like a writer. Like right. I'm thinking of titles and things like that, that you know. Um, but yeah, uh, no pun. Like just eye on the prize. Like don't get distracted. And man, cut out those who are toxic too. Like it's funny. Ilmine always talks about this on Blab Chat. Um, so he's always like reinforcing it. But it's like, yeah, man, as soon as you cut out the people that like have nothing to do with what you're trying to do, not saying cut out like your girl or your mom and shit like that, but like people that are like being anti-productive with what you're doing, you need to like step away from that because that, the, the company you keep, and that ties into the right team too. You know, your team is the company that is representing you and you need to make sure that they're on the page you are because it's, it's toxic if they're not, you know what I mean? So, with, boom. With Jared, man, not only are you a Some talented more guy, you, sir. you are a very insightful guy. <laughs> I mean, right. it's time for you to have a podcast now. Yeah, I might. <laughs> I might. I'm going to have to interview you on mine. You hey, know let's mean? do it, man. Let's do let's it. Can't go. stop, won't stop. Yeah, we're going to get that Apple deal, you know what I mean? Or Spotify, whichever comes I'll take on. any deal. Then boom. <laughs> we're going to do it. Let's do it. Jared, thank you so much for being on the show, man. <laughs> you too, man. Appreciate you, brother. Dope. Hell yeah. Sick. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of Silent Giants and to today's special guest, Jared Evan. This episode was mixed by Mark Bird. And before we get out of here, be sure to check out my other show, Other People's Podcasts, a show that highlights your favorite podcasters and the dope shows they created. I'll be sure to add that in the description of this episode as well. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off. Till next time.